From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. The food in this book, which comes from my kitchen, is eaten at my table and will be eaten at yours, is the food I've always loved cooking. It doesn't require technique, dexterity or expertise, none of which I lay claim to. Life is complicated. Cooking doesn't have to be. Hello, welcome to the first episode of Salt and Spine. I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you just heard from cookbook author and one of the most well-known home cooks, Nigella Lawson, reading from her latest work, At My Table. She's kicking off our first season. Now, you might know Nigella from one of her 10 widely popular cookbooks, or maybe one of her TV shows like Nigella Bites or Nigella Eats. For nearly two decades now, Nigella has been a home cook crusader, starting with her first book, How to Eat, which the Sunday Telegraph called the most valuable culinary guide published this decade, and all the way to her latest book, At My Table, which I'm holding here. It's beautiful. It has a nice orangish-reddish hue uh, on the cover. Uh, and a a great picture of Nigella on the front, and the subtitle is A Celebration of Home Cooking. Now, this book is full of her usual light and fun prose. She loves alliteration. She notes in one of the recipe descriptions that she hates the word tasty, which I find humorous. Uh, And she has overall great recipe descriptions, really telling some great stories about how these recipes uh, evolved and came to be. Now, we've been cooking through at my table, and personally, I loved the chicken and pea tray bake, Uh, that I made. It's a super easy and delicious recipe and relies on one of Nigella's favorite tricks using frozen peas. You literally actually dump the frozen peas, still frozen, onto your baking sheet, top it with some chicken, some leeks, pop it in the oven. The chicken gets super nice and crispy. The peas end up really flavorful. Finish it off with some dill. Mm, I really recommend it. It's a great recipe. And our executive producer, Allison, loved a quick weeknight recipe she made of Jamelli pasta with anchovies, tomatoes, and mascarpone cheese. It really comes together quickly, has a nice hit of vermouth and some red pepper spice, another favorite. Now, Nigella is a force in the cookbook industry, but for all her fame, she's really genuine. Uh, When we sat down with her, she's very down to earth, she's passionate about home cooking, and she really does make home cooks feel empowered and like you can really have fun and enjoy what you're doing in the kitchen which is why I'm so excited that she's our first guest on Salt and Spine. So I sat down with Nigella at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen Cooking School, where we record our episodes, and we talked about her approach to creating recipes that are both delicious and accessible to home cooks. We also talked about her reluctance to center her cookbooks around specific themes, her recent piece for Lena Dunham's website on home cooking and feminism, which I encourage you to read and we'll talk about briefly, and what lessons she has for home cooks everywhere. So without any further ado, here is our conversation with the self-proclaimed domestic goddess herself, Nigella Lawson. Hi, Nigella. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine today. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. We've been talking to many cookbook authors this season, and I think you may have traveled the farthest. So we really appreciate <laughs> you coming all the way over the pond to bring us your latest work. Oh, well, it's always glorious to be here. Um, so your latest work is called At My Table, yes. which you say is focused on the story of home cooking and home cooks. Um, you write about who we are, where we've come from, and the lives that we've lived. Can you talk a little bit about what your purpose was in this book and really focusing on home cooking and the concept of around a table. I will do. I mean, I hesitate to to use the word purpose. It suggests a more systematic approach Mm. than I have. But I suppose um, it's a distillation of both uh, things I've said and thought over the years, which is really to 
emphasize to the home cook um, what is possible and to to give confidence, I think, to give confidence and to protect the, the home cook, and I am a home cook, to protect the home cook from the snobberies or um, perhaps prejudices of the professional sure. because and I'm in a funny way it's not even the professional that looks down on the home cook it's 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 those people who who aspire to be a professional without knowing in fact what a hard slog it is to be a professional and how many right. people who cook um in restaurants f- feel that they've had the pleasure taken away from them that they they went into cooking professionally because they love cooking but actually it has become uh too routine and the creativity is taken away from them so really i suppose it's a celebration of home cooking but more it's a celebration of the freedom and the creativity of the home cook and i and i think that I suppose maybe because we do live in a landscape dominated by a lot of those reality TV cooking shows, um, that people think that they're meant to be pretending that their home, uh, kitchen and their table is, is a restaurant kitchen or it's a restaurant table and they should be producing that sort of food where everything, uh, requires a great deal of technique and it's plated up individually. And that would make anyone get fraught at right. home. And I couldn't do that. I wouldn't want to do that. Right. So I suppose it's just really concentrating. What is it that makes cooking important? It's a, contract between people it's a transaction it's an emotional transaction Mm -hmm. as well as one that is the most basic practical uh act if you like of sustaining life right and i think those two things are very important yeah absolutely and you've been you know a home cook evangelist evangelist for as long as you've been Mm. producing cookbooks or or cookery books as as you call them in the uk we're becoming american (laughs) okay so we can say cookbook that's acceptable perfect cookery books that make now makes everyone feel that it you you know you're talking about the 1950s (laughs) okay great that's good to know we'll we'll stick with cookbook then Mm -hmm. um but even as far back as your first cookbook how to eat um which we were revisiting a little bit before before talking with you, you say explicitly there, I am not a chef. My qualifications mm. are as an eater. So for a sort of as long as your cookbook yes. career has has taken place, you have sort of evangelized the concept of home cooks. Completely. And is that what drove you to cookbooks? Various things drove me. That were, there okay. were, It was a sort of multi-stranded, uh, as everything in life is. Right. Um, and that was you know, very much one of them that I was at a, when I first started writing um, a cookbook. It was because... I'd been at a friend's house for dinner and we were all sitting awkwardly around a table as we heard her sobbing loudly. And I just thought, this is mad. Yeah. This is not the way to cook. This is not the way to live. But I, but I think it's the difficulty is since that time, I have made some television shows and there's Mm -hmm. nothing like being on television, but to make people think that you're in fact an expert, even though anyone watching me cook on television could tell I'm not an expert. <laughs> and I feel that this, this notion of expertise is a dangerous one because it's, it, it somehow invalidates the person at home who's got her or his own views about what goes with what. Everyone can have a conversation. Taste is very subjective. I think, though, in a way, when you write a cookbook, you have to approach it like a novel in the sense there used to be an old adage, you know, be personal to be universal. And I I think, you know, not everyone likes the same spices, the same herbs. Not everyone likes the same cuts of meat or vegetables. Right. But you can't be worrying about that. I write, I write the, about food that I love and the food I feed my family and friends with. And it's really 
all about my palette because you cannot write about someone else's palette. Right. I don't think you can if it has any authenticity. Yeah. And with, with your latest book, At My Table, you open it with this vivid image of your first table. You talk about buying your first home, buying mm. a table that was something, as you say, not just to eat around, but to live around. Mm. And I love the anecdote, if you don't mind sharing, for our listeners who haven't yet dove into the cookbook, about tables and spaceships, uh, right? Yes. NASA consideration? Yeah. yeah. Yes. I, well, so shortly after I had you know, was working on this book, I came across this story of how quite reasonably when NASA first sent uh, astronauts up, they didn't bother with any tables because sure. it's not really food as you and I know it. And right. there isn't any gravity anyway. And how would it all work? Right. So I, I don't know. What it is. In my head, I see this rather ridiculous sort of Star Trek-y thing, but I don't know what it is with people with pouches or however they're eating. Um, and then after a while, the astronaut said to NASA, look, please, can we have a table? And the reason they gave, I think, is telling and very moving. And I think something we all understand. They said, because at the end of the day, we want to sit down and eat like humans. And I think there is that sense of being around a table that is, and you know, I love food and I care what I eat. But sometimes I think it's that aspect, which is as important, if not more important, because actually you could all sit in a separate space eating wonderful food, but that wouldn't be um, as that wouldn't create the bonds. And that, in a way, I think would be a great impoverishment. Be better to sit around a table than have take up. Yeah, you really, that sense of humanity is so crucial yes. to why we gather around a table, why we share meals. Um, you f have worked on cookbooks for many years now. Have you seen uh, evolution towards cookbooks that are more focused towards the home cook? Well, I think there, there are many more uh, cookbooks written for home cooks or written by home cooks. I think... It, it makes me smile because so many professional chefs suddenly come out with their home cookbooks right. and they're not really, right. you know, but, but they want to be on that bandwagon and, and why shouldn't they? But the thing is, you can be very inspired by a chef's book. You just can't cook the recipes, I believe. Sure. But you can, but if you're an experienced enough cook, you can get ideas. I think, you know, in, interestingly, I think the sort of blogging world has helped in this sphere as well, because however many, you know, many people they have coming to the blog online, they still want a cookbook. You know, right. people thought the cookbooks would die and they don't. They're proliferating. Yeah. Um, so I think that helps because they, they tend to be written by people at home. I think, you know, I think you, you have both going on. So I think you have many more home cookbooks and I think you also have, in a sense, these slightly showy big restaurant books as well. If you're asking me what I think matters, I think it's, is there a voice? Does this come from a person or is this just something that people have put on pages to sell a book? And I think voice is everything. And I, and, and I'm very glad that there, there seems to be quite a few books around by, you know, people who can write and who can convey what they feel about food. And that's very important whatever, whether you're a professional or amateur. Yeah, that, that sense of voice is so crucial. And I think that's what has really drawn people to your cookbooks, too, is we really do see a glimpse of your past, your upbringing, you reference your mother, your sister, your grandparents, mm. and all, all in various points throughout mm. at my table. And I'm curious sort of how the influence of your family and your upbringing has shaped. You've talked a little bit about this concept of comfort foods and, you know, foods that we grew up with are not necessarily the same for everybody. Mm. But how has that sort of 
influenced you as you think about bringing the things that you enjoy eating to others through your cookbooks? I, th- I think in a way the human beings have a hunger for food, but they have a hunger for narrative as well. So I think that it goes back to this idea of talking very personally, which is we may have been brought up differently, but the, but the point is we still have a very profound connection to the food that we, we grew up with. Right. Um, so if you explain that honestly and clearly, and I think evocatively, I think there, there is something about the escape into the sort of feast of prose, which doesn't have to be elaborate, but somehow is like a short story. I think that, is important. Right. Yeah. And I love, um, that you just noted you, um, think about memories of dishes and things. And I love that you have sort of taken some of those in at my table, those memories and turned them into u- new and unique dishes. The one mm. that comes to mind immediately for me is the pavlova, right? You, there's yes. this memory of your grandfather grinding pepper over strawberries, yes. right? Which then evolved into this rose and pepper and strawberry pavlova. Is that something you think about often? How to sort of take those memories and turn them into something new? It's, it is and it isn't. I focus on flavor a lot. Uh-huh. I, 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 and so I play with ideas of flavor and I don't try and come up with something new. I think it's just the way my mind works. And I suppose there are, there are plenty of times I do that and it doesn't work. So it doesn't end up in a book. Right. Um, and the same way as I've got a fricassee recipe of my grandmother's and I was saying how it really reminds me very much of a sort of Monday night leftover chicken. Right. Um, there'd be this rather mufflingly bland, thick white sauce, button mushrooms. And I, I was thinking of that fondly. I can remember the shiny wooden table we ate it on and that feeling of, um, that old fashioned, I didn't write about this in the book, but that old fashioned mixture of, you know, scent or perfume mm. or here and cigarette smoke, which is very old fashioned smell sure. that their flat had. And it was all the wonderful going there, but. When I was making a fricassee myself, I didn't want to use milk in the sauce. And I didn't want to start with leftover chicken, although I have done sometimes. And I wanted to use chicken thigh and make the sauce after I'd quickly sautéed the the meat so it flavoured the sauce, which is with stock Uh and porcini mushrooms and marsala. So I suppose it's, it's both very inspired by a memory, but I don't feel I need to do, um, an absolute recreation of the dish because in some way the memory um, I think is better than the actual dish that we ate then. Right. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I love that you mentioned cigarette smoke. Um, for me, I have very fond memories around cigarette smoke. And I actually, when I travel, we don't have smoking in restaurants in the United States. And when I travel, I love being in a restaurant with some smoke around and my wife hates it. But I'm like, this feels comforting to me. Uh, and I'm not a smoker. But I didn't grow up with it because my parents didn't smoke, but my grand, okay. but my grandmother did. And my grandfather used to smoke cigars. Yeah. And uh, there were always flowers, sort of flowers everywhere and potpourri. And it's particularly the smell that is immensely evocative. Right. Uh, you mentioned food bloggers, and I, I wanted to bring this up because actually in your book, you actually mention you mentioned Kenji um, from mm. Serious Eats a couple of times. You mentioned, I think it's a salsa recipe that you were inspired from an Epicurious Yes, although recipe. the reality with that recipe is it's it doesn't, you know, it doesn't emanate from them. There are so many other versions of it, and right. I changed it a lot. But I always like to say where I first came across a recipe, both because the evolution of a recipe is interesting and also because I don't think there is enough crediting in 
in this world and yeah. that I think so many people just copy. I can't tell you how often I've seen my recipes turn up sure. elsewhere. And sometimes it's just coincidence because various ingredients go well with one another. And, and it can be a very, it can be a coincidence and that person has no idea. Um, but other times it is just, uh, you know, someone has just taken something and that's fine. We, we do that. We're inspired by other people's recipes, but it's, to me, it's better to credit. Yeah, I think it's really important to see how you take a recipe like from Epicurious or from Kenji and, and mm. put your own spin on it so people can sort of reference yes, and I will, understand I will, your process. I will tell you that. So, for example, as far as I remember, the Epicurious recipe was a something very simple. It's, they called it a creamy jalapeno sauce, uh-huh. and I think I just called it a salsa. And it's, it was jalapenos, uh, cilantro, uh, garlic and limes, and some vegetable oil. Um, and I had to change, for me, that the, I loved all those ingredients together. They're right. wonderful together, but I just needed them in, in a markedly different ratio. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to this idea that we have our palate. Sure. Um, and I was reading with Kenji, it was a mayonnaise that he makes. Yes. Um, that was, you know, just egg and, and oil extraordinary you just use a immersion blender and it takes about a minute right i was brought up making mayonnaise the old-fashioned way when you whisked by hand right um and you just use the yolks but when i but i i so i used his method and i was very grateful for that but i wanted it to you know have a particular flavor and so i added saffron and and garlic i mean Mm -hmm. i make it more often than I can say. Yeah. Um, I told Kenji today that he's known in my house as Mr. Serious Eats because <laughs> we refer to him often. Who else do you turn to for inspiration as a home cook, not as a professional chef? Um, who do I turn to? It's it's really interesting because I'm not aware of or I don't go looking. So it can be a different way. So, for example, hmm. um, I was at a friend's restaurant in, uh, in London that's really a... He's a New Zealand chef and he, uh, uses a lot of influence from many different places. And I went for brunch and I had his Turkish eggs mm-hmm. and I really love them. And this is a very strange if you've never had it before and obviously not at all strange if you're Turkish. Right. Um, and which is a sort of garlicky yogurt, uh, with a poached egg and a chili butter sauce. Now, it was really wonderful, and I wanted to make it myself, and you know, it's simpler. And to be honest, I think it's quite rich. You don't need such big helpings. Right. And for me, what what made me, um, I suppose, when I made it myself, what I, what I thought made a real difference is something which, by the way, is not authentic. But then, as far as I know, I'd have, I've never seen this in a Turkish recipe mm-hmm. or any recipe. But I put the yogurt in a bowl and then sort of over a pan of water mm-hmm. and just whip it a bit when I add the minced garlic and salt because I feel it gives it a slightly different texture and also that when you get it to just room temperature or just above, then the poached egg uh, s- sort of almost merges with it so you have the sharpness of the garlicky yogurt and then the, the richness of the buttery egg right which, and then and they they sort of fuse together they they merge beautifully and so i suppose you have to cook things in a way to suit your own palate and that's sure. the way i did yeah and the turkish eggs recipe i think that's the first or yes. one of the very early the very recipes first yeah, the very the first in the book and and i i'm 
I'm apologizing to whoever out there reviewed your book and, and commented on this because I'm totally blanking where I read this, but somebody was reviewing that recipe and said, do I really need to take that extra step that Nigella recommends? It was Nancy Silverton. Yes, it was Nancy Silverton. She said, does that really matter to drain the yogurt in that way? And it does, well, to heat right? It. Yes. Yeah, to heat it and, and yeah. sort of pull some of that extra moisture out too. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a great testament to how simple your recipes are, but when you're advocating an extra step, it's really done for a I reason. I feel it has to be there in the same way. So in that, there were two things which have extra steps. So the, the whisking over, mm-hmm. over heat of the yogurt and the draining of the egg right. when I crack it before poaching. Right. But I have said to people, if you have a, a way of poaching eggs that you're comfortable with, ignore that completely. It's just that I had always had this um, perhaps disproportionate fear of poaching eggs. <laughs> and so I added this step. And as I say in the recipe, to be honest, I don't crack the egg and put it in a tea strainer or sieve um, every day of the week when I'm making my breakfast. Right. But if I'm doing this and I just want the egg to have that wonderful round shape right. without those bits of strands, then I will. You know, so I, I think it's also helpful to say this is at your discretion. Mm-hmm. You want, you know, you don't have to do this step. It, this is what happens if you do. And this is what happens if you don't. But I was very pleased that she, that Nancy Silverton and what an honor yes. to have a book, um, tested by her. I was very, I was very pleased that she, um, said it, she was surprised what a difference it made to the texture of the yogurt. And, you know, and as I say, it didn't surprise me that she thought it wasn't worth doing that to the egg because many people, especially she must have poached so many eggs in her life right. that she doesn't need any helpful hand holding primer. But I did, and I did. And so I put it in for other people like me. Yeah. And I think many home cooks do. Poaching an egg is not necessarily the easiest thing. And then in the once world. you get, once you crack it, not to be, you know, too terrible a pun, then you think, why <laughs> yeah. was I worried all those years? Right. And there's so much of that in cooking that you think something's really difficult and frightening and then you do it. And of course, the real truth is, is that this, most people think they do it once and they find it difficult because then you do it three times and you think, oh no, this is so easy. We'll be right back with more of our Nigella conversation. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school offering hands-on classes and events for home cooks in San Francisco's Mission District. You'll love their open, airy, and welcoming space, perfect for learning different techniques, cuisines, and styles from expert chefs. And I personally love their wonderfully curated cookbook library, the backdrop of Salt and Spine episodes. Now don't miss the Civic Kitchen's upcoming classes on topics like All About Sesame or our new favorite, Cookbook Writing, with Diane Jacob. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. Now back to our conversation with Nigella Lawson. Speaking of how simple your recipes are too, in, in At My Table, the book itself is very quite simple. You you decided not to have sort of traditional chapters and you, mm-hmm. you note that at the forefront. Can you talk a little bit about that editorial yes, decision making? I will. So I have to say, I'm not very good at conventional chapters anyway. I mm-hmm. don't really do a kind of soup salads right. type of a chapter construction. I'm minor, more narrative in a way. But nevertheless, when I nearly finished writing this book or doing it, I just thought, I cannot put chapters in. It's just felt so wrong for the particular book. And mm-hmm. I, I hadn't entirely figured out why, except that it felt wrong. And I think it, I realized that in a way there's a messiness and lack of structure about the way we eat at home that, you know, like who's to say it's lunch 
or dinner. Right. So yeah. I really felt it didn't suit home cooking or the way I eat. And I felt I needed, I don't know, I can't remember exactly the expression of the book, but the book to, this book to reflect the sort of honest jumble of the way I cook and eat. Right. And to the same tune, sort of, you also um, recommend leftovers or give yes. a sort of caveat about serving size, which I thought was very helpful from a home cook perspective. Yes. Too. Well, I always feel that my serving sizes are generous and I live in fear of people not having enough mm. but at the same time there are some times when I will do for example I've got a, the most wonderful um does it sound I, I don't wish to sound immodest you know it's not wonderful because of anything I've done it's these perfect ingredients a chocolate olive oil mousse now actually there the portions are quite small and I always feel like saying to people if I do that you can trust me because I can eat a lot but this is very rich and you don't need that much but and I love having you know ideas for leftovers. I can't stop myself. Sometimes I had to have to cut it because otherwise the book would be so long. <laughs> yeah. I did once write a book where at the end of most recipes I had a little thing calling making leftovers right and with ideas. But uh -huh. there was one I've got an Indian spice chicken and potato tray bake like right. a sheet pan dinner, and it's not a recipe, but. You know, whenever I have any leftover, I shred the bit of chicken and I mix it with mayonnaise, uh, garam masala and mango chutney. So, of course, I have to share that to say it just makes the most fantastic sandwiches. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Um, how has your cooking style evolved over time? I think as you look back at some of your older cookbooks, I see more of like you look at how to eat and I see homemade chicken stock as one of the early recipes. And now here, I think in one of the recipe notes, you mentioned like canned chicken stock or store-bought yes. chicken stock is totally fine same with frozen peas which i know you're frozen your, oh your i have many bait. frozen peas in yes. how to eat um many do you know the thing is th there's a reason for that and it uh -huh. isn't because my cooking style has evolved enormously okay um be because i think that it's developed uh, certainly but i don't i don't think it's basically changed okay which is that i'm not someone who i try if, to make each book have different recipes. So if I've done a, ba I mean, in a way I could, if I've done a chicken broth in how to eat, I could do another one, right. but I have done it. And I've done sure. various chicken soups over the years. So I try as much as possible not to do that. But it's also because I think there's a difference. I think that when I was in how to eat, I was talking about the gloriousness of a clear soup just mm -hmm. eating that. And then you want it to be homemade. And also I was talking about basics and how you manage in a kitchen and you've made roast chicken and therefore you've got the carcass. Right. But generally in life, I, w I will use real chicken broth or stock for soup. You know, a chicken soup is going to be there. But if I'm using it as a factor in another recipe, um, if it were a flavored soup where right. everything is quite strong or a sauce, then I do use store-bought. Yeah. It makes sense. Um, you wrote a piece recently for Lenny Letter, which is Lena mm -hmm. Dunham's website, mm -hmm. um, about cooking being a feminist, home cooking being a mm. feminist act. Um, and I really loved that, particularly from the home cook perspective. And you noting in that piece a little bit the history of male chefs sort of dominating mm. professional cooking and, and consequently mm. having home cooking be something that was viewed of as lesser. Yes. Um, and it was a very interesting piece, mm -hmm. I think, as you look at your 20 years of cookbook writing and that narrative being prominent throughout. What happened is, and I understand it completely, is that for women of my generation, a lot of their mothers had, had been slightly trapped into domesticity and not 
necessarily enjoyed it. Mm. You know, a life that you're forced into, you know, if you don't choose. You know, there are problems. Right. And so they had said to their daughters, whatever you do, don't get stuck in the kitchen. Mm. And therefore, for, for many women, I do, I do get it. I just didn't see, I didn't see cooking as drudgery because I didn't see my job as to be, uh, I didn't see cooking as subjugation. I, I saw it as independence. Right. Um, but nevertheless, so many women sort of boasted about how they didn't know their way about a kitchen as if it meant in some way that they were better feminists. And I was saying, well, actually, you know, just think about it. It does denigrating something because it's traditionally been in the female arena. If that's a, your sole reason, then that in itself is anti-feminist. So cooking is a way of, you know, I think that it's been traditionally, uh, female activity and um we should celebrate it yeah i mean i'm glad i'm glad that nowadays men and women cook equally i think that's important because the real truth is um both men and women need domestic security we need to feel we're creating a home that is that we're uh feeding ourselves that we're sustaining ourselves it's so this these 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 things are important and you cannot be powerful if you're not fed and you should be able to feed yourself right yeah um that's very true you also have written um that you don't need any qualifications to cook you don't need certain specifications do you think that's a big role roadblock for home cooks today and something that you've tried to sort of move people beyond oh i think i think it affects every single area of life now Hmm. that people think you need to pass and examine it right and um you know obviously it's a it's completely absurd with food because otherwise we wouldn't have survived so long as human beings right um and i think that it's people have an instinct and if you override that it, it creates a fundamental lack of confidence and and i think that um challenge that home cooks have of feeling that that sort of insecurity or unqualification um comes from our social media society too do you experience that uh, with folks who follow not, you I like that I think it goes both ways. I think that, you know, to some extent, you know, Instagram can make people feel less than because everything is looking so beautiful. Right. But then on the other hand, there are many accounts where everything is just fantastically, you know, real life and you can see the washing up gloves, sure. you know, behind and you, I love it. I mean, I sure, feel for yeah. me, people cooking my recipes and tagging me or, uh, it's a, it's, it's, lo- it's a lovely feeling that recipe that comes from my home is cooked in other people's homes. I think perhaps the, what's affected people, um, in a way that I find unhelpful is television more than anything else, mm. which is why I feel it's important that I make television programs with my lousy chopping and so <laughs> forth. But one, because people see everything looking so, uh, flawless on TV. Right. It's an, but also I think, because it takes away the notion that you just have to do things quite a lot. So I think people think, oh, you do one recipe, then you go on to the next. Whereas really, a lot of home cooks are very confident because they've just cooked for a lot of time. And this idea that you've never cooked and then suddenly you have a big dinner party, I don't, that's, that's just not life and it's not realistic. And it's so important just to cook for yourself, I think. That's how you learn to cook. Right. Well, at, at my table is a celebration of home cooking. And what is the message that somebody picks up this cookbook today, goes home and reads it, um, or any of your other cookbooks that you hope home cooks take away from your body of work? I think it's just do it. Mm-hmm. Just do it and try and 
live in the process, not just constantly be fretting about the result. Just cook for yourself a bit, work out what sort of cooking style suits you more, whether you're someone who likes to do um, the sort of cooking you do in advance, whether you're someone who wants to do that sort of last-minute chopping and right. sort of stirring everything together. But most of all, I think, just get in the kitchen and do it and don't persecute yourself. Don't judge yourself all the time. Uh, and because it's very hard to enjoy what you do or to come up with anything you're pleased with if you're looking to, looking to um, persecute yourself for your flaws rather more than actually just enjoy the food. Right. Yeah, wonderful advice. Thank you so much for My joining pleasure. us, Nigella Lawson. We're so glad to have you. Wow, what a great conversation with Nigella. Now let's head over to Omnivore Books in San Francisco, where we're catching up with Celia Sack in our From the Vault series. Hi, Celia. Great to talk to you. Hi, nice to be here. So we just sat down with Nigella Lawson and talked about her latest book, At My Table. I'm mm -hmm. wondering if you have something from your vault to share for this episode. Well, what I wanted to talk about was actually a book by her designer. So the woman who designs all of her books is named Kaz Hildebrand. Okay. She's British. She's done Herbarium. She's done some great books. And her latest one is this gorgeous book called Grammar of Spice. Yes, it is beautiful. And, yeah. And it's got all these papers that she designed throughout that are just gorgeous and each uh page is a different um spice and it talks about how it's used what its history is and a little bit about its flavor so wow. i just want to promote you know that that now her designer is going on and doing having this great career as well and uh I, and i really i love this book i recommend it to anyone who doesn't know it, what to buy for someone as a present if they uh -huh. cook this is a perfect little reference book yeah it's beautiful and the title is the grammar of spice yes that's right kaz hildebrand perfect thanks so much celia Talk to you soon okay well, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening to our first episode. Head to our website, saltandspine.com, to find an excerpt from At My Table, as well as a recipe for Nigella's chocolate olive oil mousse. If you like Salt and Spine, remember to click subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a review. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself, with audio support from Nina Ernest. Thanks to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, as well as to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. If you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and we hope you do, please join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com slash saltandspine. There, you'll find subscriber-only content, cookbook giveaways, and other surprises. We are entirely listener-funded, and we value your support and your feedback. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. 